1: In most industries, selling a company is a sign of success. And for whatever reason in this industry, I think a lot of people feel like it's not a sign of success. And the reality is you built a great company and somebody wants to compensate you for the thing that's most valuable about your company, you should be celebrating that. Um, And it's really unfortunate that that hasn't been the case, but I think you're gonna see a little bit more of that merger style activity going forward.
0: Welcome to Powerhouse. I'm Clayton Collins, CEO at HousingWire and your host for the Powerhouse Podcast. Today we have the opportunity to talk about one of my favorite topics, mergers and acquisitions. Our guest is Brett Ludden, M&A advisor and consultant at Sterling Point Advisors. And we spend this entire conversation talking about M&A in the independent mortgage bank market. There are so many factors that drive the deal economy from where origination volume sits to where it's forecasted, technology, culture, people, so much. That matters here and brett and i have the opportunity to explore all of this including deal structures and what we anticipate in 2024 and beyond i hope you enjoy this powerhouse conversation with brett ludden as we talk about m&a in the imb market enjoy the show i get the pleasure today to talk about one of my my favorite topics in in business and in housing Mergers and acquisitions. Brett, welcome to Powerhouse.
1: All right, thanks, Clayton. I appreciate being here.
0: Well, I'm thrilled to talk to you today. You have an extensive track record in mergers and acquisitions, and on the business side of financial services and and housing. So I'm excited to to dive in with you. But can we start off talking about your role in the industry today? What do you do as an M and A advisor? Tell us about Sterling Point. Give us a glimpse.
1: Absolutely. Uh, so Sterling Point Advisors uh, does M&A advisory work across a variety of industries. My partner, Jeff Julian, and I are focused on financial services. And as you can appreciate, for the past two years, a big portion of our business has been focused on independent mortgage banks. Um, we really focus on helping companies that are originating between, say, $500 million and $5 billion of loans on an annual basis. Uh, so kind of that middle market of companies. Yep. And what's interesting is that the bulk of our work is not actually just doing deals. It's actually talking to owners and CEOs on a regular basis and helping giving them a landscape of what we're seeing in the industry, what we're hearing from others and how they need to be thinking about preparing for the future. So uh, we have a really good background, not just on how to get deals done, but also to set expectations for what uh, mortgage lenders should expect in in the upcoming months or years
0: how does that conversation typically initiate like when do, when do you start talking to the ceo or founder or board of a mid-market imb and what's usually the fir- the question they're coming to you with an answer for
1: yeah it's a great question um we do a variety of outreach uh we're we're a pervert advisor on the lenders one network so lenders one members will regularly reach out just because they want to seek advice they've seen articles we've done Um, I've got a lot of relationships on LinkedIn, and um, when I'm sharing information on LinkedIn, people will say, hey, do you have five minutes? And when they get together, the number one thing they want to know is, like, what is our outlook for what's going on? Is it as painful for everybody else as it feels for them? So we do spend a lot of time trying to help manage expectations that you may or may not be better than your at your average peer. But the reality is that it's been a really tough environment for just about everybody.
0: So I was an M and A banker in a past life before becoming a media executive and 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 acquiring and running Housing Wire. The bankers that I know from my Wall Street days are not sharing information and building and building strong relationships on LinkedIn. What do you yeah. share on social, and why? I mean, I'll, I'll just say it: you're a different flavor than a lot of M and A advisors out there. So t- tell me about your approach yeah. and
1: why. Yeah, I would say we're we're not bankers. Um, Jeff and I are both business people. I, I started a mortgage company back in the early 2000s. I've worked for big banks as an analyst. Jeff is an analyst as well. Jeff was involved in a lot more deal making, but we don't come from traditional investment banks. And our perspective here is that. Our job is not to just try to maximize revenue and get deals closed. It's to be helpful to the industry. And we believe that by being helpful to the industry, then we will ultimately be able to to find opportunities to do deals um, that that pay the bill. So I think there is a different mentality that both of us bring. And a lot of it comes from the fact that we're analysts at heart. We love looking at data. Uh, Jeff loves looking back at past uh, economic environments to try to understand what does the future hold? So for the past two years, we've been trying to tell people since the beginning of 2022, get ready for an extended period of pain. And if lenders had watched some of the webinars we did in early 2022 and decided to exit then, they would have gotten really good compensation. They would have been able to avoid a lot of the losses that they've incurred over the past two years. I mean,
0: hindsight's clear uh you know what is it what's the saying uh, hindsight's twenty twenty but um yeah. but a lot of people didn't exit, and they were a little more optimistic or or less pessimistic about how challenging the market could become in the second half of twenty two and twenty three but I say that and then again there's plenty of experienced operators out there who have been through multiple cycles and they're just comfortable with like the the pain cycles um but I know you can't go back to those people that you were talking to in 2022 and say, I told you so. So (laughs) what does that 2023 and 2024 conversation look like? Because we know that the M&A market was not as hot in 22 as um, it should have been if on the sell side, um, not the buy side. Uh, And 2023 is also a little quieter than I think a lot of us expected.
1: Yeah. I think there are a couple elements to this. Uh, First of all, at the end of the day, we never take pride in um, being right about something if, if it, if it ends up that somebody's hurt by it. Um, yep. it's unfortunate. And at least we, we are in a business where we can be helpful if people are willing to listen. And I think that holds true today as well. I think a lot of lenders see the flipping of the calendar and assume that when you get into a new calendar year, it means there's a reset and maybe this is the year everything's better. The reality is. The calendar divider is is fictitious. It doesn't actually exist. What matters is what's actually going to happen over the course of the next 12 to 18 months. And a, a lot of the lenders that we have talked to consistently over time have really started to listen to us. Uh, a lot of the lenders that we're working with today are making assumptions about the economy be, or the mor- mortgage industry being worse than what is being predicted. And saying, is this an environment I would want to be in if origination volume is down 20% from what is expected, which essentially means 2024 looks just like 2023. And as a result, I think you're actually going to see more deals happening that are not based on companies that are at a point where it's kind of like their house is on fire, but it's more so them saying, I'm choosing to make a strategic decision now because I'm not willing to take an additional risk. And those are the types of conversations we're we're largely having with with lenders today. Is is there another 18 months of pain, and do I have capital reserves that I'm willing to take additional risk, or do I want to have strategic options? And if so, what what are the options that are available to me? I'll be the first one to tell you, Clayton, that it has been a great surprise to us how few deals have gotten done. And I've I've said this a few times. I think it it boils down to you have entrepreneurs and optimists running mortgage companies. And they all believe that it's if it, things are kind of right around the corner, I'll figure out a way to make this work. And uh, I think that's great. It, at the end of the day, um, a lot of these people don't want to go be employees for other companies. And um, they say they're, they're, they're worried they're going to regret the decision. In our experience, in going through these deals, it's very rare. I I, I can't think of a situation where somebody sold their company and they actually had regret on the other side. If anything, it was far greater relief for them personally uh, from an emotional perspective than they could have possibly imagined. So um, I think you're going to see a pickup in deals this year, um, but it's still not going to be maybe as big as we ever would have thought.
0: I had a few conversations in the last few weeks with uh, it, M&A bankers and private equity investors, more so around like the solutions and software and tech side. and. There seems to be a a ramp of tech M and A and like kind of deals, you know, moving to LOI stage as we as we do flip that proverbial calendar from twenty twenty three to twenty twenty four. But the big motivator there in like the, the tech and telecom and media space has been stabilization. So 22 and 23 were really hard. There was um you know a lot of metrics were not moving up into the right but but moving uh down into the right. Uh, there's been stabilization and some people are starting to like find a wind of growth again which gives a a floor in valuations and more confidence on on the buyer side which seems to be propelling the tech and solutions M&A market. Is it stabilization in the IMB space which might like propel a more active 24 or is this pure seller psychology
1: well i think first of all on the technology side one of the things that we're seeing across all industries is that liquidity is is starting to dry up yeah so the expectation is that you're going to see less liquidity for companies that need cash and this could be a multi-year type of situation so
0: and when you say like liquidity we're talking like the the venture dollars have stopped flowing as freely. It, it's not a given that you're going to get that Series A round or Series B round. Um, and then like the private equity side, like multiples have tightened up a little bit and deal structures have gotten a little bit harder.
1: Yes, exactly, Clayton. So that's a part of why you're seeing more M&A in the, the mortgage space. But it's also enabled by the fact that they've kind of at least hit the bottom. So you yeah. know where the bottom is. Um, I think on the um on the MA side for for lenders, the I think the decision point on why you're gonna see more deals is twofold. First of all, they've been putting their own personal money into their companies to maintain their capitalization. Um there there was a, a slide that Marina Walsh from the NBA shared at the NBA last week where they, she talked about how cash has been stable for the past three quarters. It's my belief that the cash is stable because lenders are taking it out of their own personal checking accounts to put it into their company to meet required liquidity numbers.
0: Meet the, to meet their warehouse like and like their the correspondent company. requirements, right?
1: Exactly.
0: Net worth requirements. So, okay.
1: So they're getting to the point where there's only but so much money you can take out of your own personal bank. Um, and if you're talking about now another maybe year, a year and a half of doing more of it, they're just like, hey, I'm I'm tapped out. So that's number one. The second one is that we're seeing a lot more unique approaches to deals. So I think you're going to see more true merger type conversations as we go forward, as opposed to straight up asset deals, which has been 90% of this industry. It is more complex. It is uh, It takes longer to do. But at the end of the day, you have entrepreneurs that want to remain entrepreneurial. And they want to keep skin in the game. And a true merger is a way to do that.
0: So in the asset deal, cash is actually coming out the door. There's liquidity for the operator. And there's often a scenario where the operator steps aside and you know goes to the beach or moves on to the next venture. In a merger, you're achieving a similar desire for the business and that you're finding more scale, combining resources, but there's not as much liquidity, if any at all. And the operators are typically staying involved.
1: Yeah, the operators tend to stay involved um, in, in asset deals because... They're a, a linchpin to their sales team staying with the company. So uh, it's rare yeah. that you see, unless it's an owner that was not running the business, you, you typically see that that person stay involved with the business. Um, you're absolutely right. In a merger, you're not taking chips off the table. You're, you're really doubling down. Um, but what what it allows you to do is that you still maintain a, a level of control in what that company is going to do in, in the future. And also, you have maybe the ability for a little bit of independence and operating models. One of the big concerns from some of the companies that I talk to is this idea that I'm not sure that my team will be able to assimilate, even with its own DBA, to the culture of this company that's interested in acquiring me. If you do a merger, you have the ability to create a little bit more independence on how the teams function um, when you uh, pull those two companies together. But you still get a lot of the synergies from back office savings. That allows for that that merger to be successful.
0: Correct me if I'm wrong. As we talk about like mergers or
1: asset deals
0: where chips are coming off the table, we're we're often you know talking about businesses that are that are performing and like you know probably toward the the larger end of that that mid market range. There's also been a lot of talk of the the walkover and kind of some of these like more. you know, not as not as successful outcomes for for the seller. Are, are you seeing that as well? And tell me if I'm interpreting the market the right way.
1: Well, first of all, uh, a merger of two struggling companies, it <laughs> is not our recommended path to success. Yeah. If you were struggling as a company, you should be talking to somebody about all strategic options. You should be talking to us about everything, and we're we're open to finding the best alternative. But if you're two struggling companies and you're going to try to come together as a strong company, I would advise you to be really thoughtful about whether or not that's going to work. So One of my
0: favorite has, investors says, don't have a baby to save a marriage. And that's the uh, two struggling companies coming together.
1: Exactly. So w- we've been involved in, in conversations. And in most cases, um, cooler heads prevail when they, they realize you, you dig into the financials and you, you look at it and you're like, You're not going to come out strong. Maybe you'll come out with a chance to survive. But again, it's predicated on what's the environment going to be over the next 12 months. If the environment's going to be worse than forecasted, you're going to end up in a similar type of situation. So when you talk about walkovers, I assume you're talking about like somebody just raises their hands like, hey, I'm shutting down. What's going to happen?
0: Yep. Where do the originators go?
1: Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day uh you know this industry uh pretty well you know how many phone calls are, are occurring when it, when somebody announces that they're shutting down um we we don't need to get into details of companies but i've seen some reporting recently of uh decisions that were made by one of the larger lenders the reality is you need to have a plan before you announce and, and one of the things yeah. that i always tell my my clients the, the owner or the ceo is that as much as you want to be transparent with your people it's not in anybody's interest to start talking about the fact that you're thinking about doing a deal, because uncertainty is a far more powerful negative driver of people leaving than, uh, than the challenges that the industry is facing. So if you create uncertainty for people, they will choose to walk. Um, instead, if you're going to just wind down, th- there's a, a really interesting path of being able to offer to people when you announce that you're going to wind down that there are a couple of groups that you brought to forward for them to actually meet with, to learn about their business, to learn about their tech stack, learn about their value mm-hmm. proposition. And those companies are ready to onboard those people as new employees if they're interested. So that is definitely an alternative. It is a lot less uh, compensation for the owner, but it's also a lot less stress. So I yeah, think you're gonna yeah. see more of those as, as companies just decide that wind down is the best path for them.
0: At HousingWire, we're obsessed with data and analytics. Without good insight, there's no shot at operational excellence or innovation. Mortgage lenders that want to thrive in today's market must have access to due diligence and valuation intel, risk management tools, and predictive analytics. And they have to cover everything from the asset to the enterprise. This is exactly what Consolidated Analytics does. If you want to make more informed decisions and optimize performance, you have to check out Consolidated Analytics. Visit consolidatedanalytics.com to start your journey toward more informed decision making. Originator retention has been like such an important point in any market, but in this like MA centric tone that we're talking about, it's an incredibly important topic. We've seen a few deals that we thought were going to happen, but kind of end up breaking apart because originated retention doesn't, um, isn't, isn't looking like it's going to work out the way uh, the buyer needs it to. Um, so yeah. through the lens of helping a IMB CEO prep for a deal outside of like not leaking the details before it's actually done. Um, what else should an operator be doing if they are trying to sell their business and make sure the yellows stick around and transition to the buyer? Or from the buyer lens of ensuring that you actually get what you acquired in terms of the originators who drive volume.
1: Yeah, I'll I'll give you an example on on both sides, of both what, what the seller can do and what the buyer can do. For for the seller side, um, identifying key people is so critical, and in almost every deal, I think every deal we've done, there's some pool of retention money for those key people, even if. There's not money for the owner in a, up upfront in a transaction, because at the end of the day, the, the sales team is critical to the success of that transaction. Um, but key people are not necessarily just your rainmakers. Key people can be um, an underwriter that is tremendous at what they do and everybody loves working with them, even that person's a stickler. Uh, it can be a technology person that anytime there's been a technology issue, this technology person always found the solution when nobody else could. So figure out the key people and make sure they're a part of that deal because that's one of the things you can sell to your team when you announce it. From a buyer's perspective, and they have to work in hand with their seller, they really have to understand what's the value proposition they're bringing. What what is it that's better about going to the buyer than what they had before? It could be a better execution. It could be a better sales, sales tools. It could be that it's just more stable and the company has tons of cash and more certainty that they're going to be around. But lay out your value proposition, and when you're ready to announce it, have a plan, a a solid communications plan for how you're going to get that information to everyone, and you're going to be available to talk to every single person that has questions and wants to have some sit-down time. You can't just assume that people are going to want to follow you. The reality is great CEOs, in many cases, their people will want to follow them, but there are a bunch of steps you can take to mitigate that risk as well
0: it's a challenge because it's a competitive industry and a lot yeah. of like you've um, you know, you've had a often the buyer is someone you've been competing with tooth and nail. And like, you probably even built a culture of saying like, we, we hate this lender because we're driving hard against them. And then like, you know, one day you're going to be one. That's a, that's a message that has to be managed with, with a lot of nuance. Um, I understand as an advisor in transactions and M&A that, part of the job is helping a seller choose the right buyer and that buyer you know sometimes is uh the person with the the highest price or or the best structure but in mortgage lending we have some massive players who have never done a deal like they've been built organically and we have other players who have been really acquisitive and participated in lots of transactions how do you think about deal experience in terms of probability of close and as you're as you're talking to a
1: seller today for starters, the the bulk of our work is we we represent the buyer, so we're we're doing the buy side support.
0: I didn't um, realize that. I, I guess I should have asked that up front, like
1: how the split between yeah. and, and buy, buy and sell. So yeah, we, keep going. We tend to represent the buyer, and, and it's for reasons that you've already laid out, which is that a seller in many cases doesn't want to create a pitch deck and send it around to fifty companies. Like that's the last thing they want to do. I, I've had situations where we put together the pitch deck, gave them the list of companies we were going to go to, and they crossed out every name on the list. They're like, "Yeah, you can't send it to anybody." And it's like, "Well, who are you going to sell to if we can't even?" talk to That's the paranoia associated with what could happen in recruiting. Um, but we do we do have sell side re- representation, um, and so we're we're working on. We really be, play a major role of that matchmaker. Um, and figuring out like who do we think is going to have the right culture. In many cases, you don't want a massive amount or really any overlap in uh, key areas where where the team where they have big sales teams, because of the concerns that you raised a few minutes ago. Yeah. Um, you you hope that you just get unique geographies that that helps mitigate some of that risk. But you'd be amazed how important the first conversation between the two CEOs is of determining whether or not they think they're going to want to work together. And liking each other, um, but culture goes so much further than that. It is how do our how do our operations function with our technology? How do we address issues that come up with a loan that's got some problems? Are we going to approve this loan? There are there are questions and differences, and in, as in, in, you can appreciate, L O comp uh, yeah. is, a, yeah. is a major one. You got to make sure you're consistent. Um, so all of those things ultimately have to get worked through in order to figure out who's the best match. And I'll tell you that unlike a lot of industries that Jeff and I have been involved in prior to really focusing on this smaller middle market uh, independent mortgage industry, a lot more deals fall apart because there isn't an ideal fit. And to some extent, it may be that they're just doing a better job of identifying and avoiding deals than big companies that just do the deals and then realize these things after the fact.
0: Go a little deeper on, on LO Comp. I'm sure that's a topic that gets uh, CEOs heated in it, or I don't know, passionate in, uh, in those introductory meetings. And there's a lot of different philosophies and a lot of different viewpoints about how compensation models are, are impacting margin and efficiency and where the power sits. Like, go a little deeper on how you think about compensation and, and building alignment in a transaction.
1: Well, I mean, step one is just being really explicit about what comp structures are in a very, very early conversation. It's not the first conversation, but it's one of the first conversations. And at the end of the day, for the most part, the seller has to be able to get comfortable with the structure that the buyer has. That That's kind of the bottom line. It's rare that the the buyer is going to be able to materially change their structure to accommodate something that is out, out of line with, with what they do today. Um, in those cases, we, we tend to part ways pretty quickly. Um, it's, it's every once in a while that you have nuances that you can get, um, the, the seller to say, yeah, I think I can work with my team, but every change you ask a salesperson to do, change system, change the company name, change your LO comp, sign these new employment agreements. Every one of those is kind of an extra paper cut. And the more paper cuts you have, the more risks you have that they're going to, I look at least look at other opportunities. So you want to minimize the, those those changes as much as you can.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. We call that the 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 knife fight. Um, all the little cuts that like ultimately uh, bleed bleed you out. So um, yeah. yeah, that's that minimization of change. I think is a very important topic, not just in M and A, but but leadership and and operations. Period. Um, so. We started the conversation talk, talking about some of the market dynamics that, that you and Sterling point anticipated in 2022, how that's played out over the last last 18 months. Give us a deeper lens into kind of how you're thinking about the mortgage market in 2024 and um and and beyond. Like are you c- carrying the same level of pessimism that you carried in 2022 um and, and how does that flow into decision making?
1: Uh, so no, we do not carry the same level of pessimism, um, which is good. We, we think that you're going to see a bottoming out of, of margins here at the beginning of this year and margins are going to start to, and slowly, slowly, but steadily continue to improve over the course of the next couple of years. So the longer people wait, the more margin they're going to see. Um, we don't try to independently forecast production. We, we follow MBA when it comes to production forecasts, um, but MBA is assuming that they're going to see a growth in production over time. So when you look at that from a profitability perspective, we think that 2024 is going to be another year where it's going to be tough for most lenders to to get it to be profitable without some strategic actions. Um, but we think once you get past 2024, things are going to be looking pretty good. Um I think that a lot of groups have realized that they have to be more strategic thinking in what they do on a going forward basis permanently. So you're gonna see more and more deals, not just because somebody's struggling, but because they realize they have to compete. and are you good at recruiting or are you not good at recruiting? If you're not good at recruiting, or well, why are you in this business? Um, if you don't have a great cost infrastructure relative to your peers looking at the NBA peer round group round, uh, peer group roundtable, and you don't know how to cut your costs, you need to find somebody to help you do that, or you need to find a partner to figure out how to be yeah. competitive. So I think more companies are going to be focused on those strategic things. And I, as a result of that, I think the companies that are coming out of 2024 are going to end up being really good performing. And I feel like uh, they're going to be successful.
0: Yeah, I joked about that on our other podcast. If, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. The yeah. <laughs> New York State of Mind. Um, yeah, and that's been one of my takes on, you know why it, that the lend the lenders who made it through twenty two twenty three and into twenty four, um, you know, you know, I figured something out. They figured out like like how to survive in the hardest of times. But as you talked about earlier, liquidity becomes a challenge, and our you know is you know personal checkbooks still funding networks? Like you know, there's a there's a point when um when that can't like keep going, or it's not logical for it to keep going. But the lenders who have Got their cost structure in the right place, been able to make the right technology investments, <laughs> decided that they're going to be recruiters or are good at recruiting and attracting. Are those the qualities that make that position an independent mortgage bank to be an attractive acquirer in in twenty twenty four? Or are there are there other characteristics that you see as like, um, you know, shared characteristics, shared decision making that like position somebody to be an optimal consolidator of origination volume?
1: Well, you, you asked me earlier, and I didn't ever answer the question, but um, if you don't have experience with M&A, you may have experience onboarding really big branches. And I think that's okay if if you have that experience. If you do not have experience onboarding really big branches and you want to do an M&A deal with a, a big group, the problem is going to be the seller is not going to be interested in taking that risk. So it's not yeah, that you know. can't do it. It's that the seller is going to say, I can go to anyone and they would be interested in acquiring me. Like there are far more buyers than there are sellers. So for the most part, we we really discourage groups that don't have M&A experience from trying to be a buyer. We discourage groups that say, I'm struggling, but if I do M&A, I might not be struggling anymore from being a buyer. Um, so I think that's the first thing. the The tech stack definitely matters. Um, culture definitely matters. The other thing you didn't mention is the cash position of the company. There is an intensive working capital impact to buying or even onboarding a business, even bringing on a branch. If you don't have adequate cash and the market tends to be a little bit less successful than or a little, it doesn't grow quite as much as you thought, you can find yourself in a bad position. So strong cash positions for the buyers, I think is also something that the uh, company is looking at. I've seen multiple deals where a buyer or would-be buyer, a couple months later, is in HousingWire wire being announced that they're merging or selling their company to somebody else. So it definitely happens. Um, but I want to focus on tech stack because I don't think I've ever met a CEO who didn't say we have a great tech stack. And then I'll say, all right, well, tell me about your great tech stack. And it's like, all right, we have Encompass, we've got Simple Nexus, or we've got Blend, we've got this great CRM tool. it's like, that's all they know, or that's all they can really discuss about their tech stack. But tech stack is about the integration. It's the integration of the tools. It's the integration of those tools with the process and the people. And in my experience, there are only a handful of companies that have truly great aggregate Uh, technology solutions Um, and you really are only going to see that through diligence but when you go through diligence the, the seller very quickly will either say this tech stack's not that good or they'll be like wow like we have the same tools but the way they do this is superior to anything we've ever done
0: an operator talking about how great their tech stack is shouldn't start with the vendors in the stack. They should start with what the outcome is. Like we close loans faster than, or our um, our process is X percent more efficient, which which improves margin by Y. And like being able to demonstrate there's an outcome to the, the investments have been made, I think would be a critical. That's how I would want to hear that question answered. If I was asking someone about their tech stack, not like, what agreement she signed. And and the agreements are important. You gotta pick the right tech partners, but if you don't integrate well and integrate the stack well, I think your point is just is spot on. Like that's that's where like the, the nuance and integration is where value is created. Yeah,
1: absolutely.
0: Okay. So, uh, like, let's go a little more like deeper on tech. Are there certain tools that you think are like setting people apart right now? Is like the, is the AI thing overblown or is that in action? Like outside of like, you know, base, LOS, CRM point of sale, like what else are you seeing and and where should people put emphasis for value creation?
1: Well, you know how many tech tech companies are out there offering solutions. I'm not a tech expert. Um, in my my company that I told you about at the beginning of our conversation, we we actually built our own LOS and POS back in two thousand five because we wanted a process that was that was our process, and technology tends to get in the way of your ideal process. So companies that are really good at this have figured out how to let leverage the technology to follow the process they want, which results in better outcomes. But every company is going to be unique in how they do that and how they approach that. So I can't really give you like the rules of thumb, but it means in there, like there was a CEO of, of of a $2 billion lender at IMB last week that is really like the head of technology for his company. And you could tell when he was talking that he understood how his technology enables the company. So I think you definitely will see... That if, if the CEO is really engaged and they understand it and they're driving the decisions, that's a sign that the company's probably really investing heavily in, in the right types, types of technology decisions.
0: All right. That's excellent. So, so Brett, let's conclude the conversation, um, with giving our audience a little bit of free advice. So let's say we are, uh, we have an IMB leader who has the right tech stack and integration. Um has the cash position to to be an acquirer, um, has some, some M&A experience. How do you help that executive make the decision of what path they're going to go down? Because all those characteristics, they make you a qualified buyer, but they also make you an attractive target. So like, how, how do you yeah. help that person make the decision about where they're going to go and um, what's right for them?
1: Well, at the end of the day, we're not making decisions for anybody. Um, as you said, we we are educating and if we can give them confidence about what they're doing and they feel good based on their plan that they can survive it, then that's great. At, at the end of the day, I'm happy to give that advice and they they choose to save the course um, the The key advice that I think they that uh, that owner is going to hear from us today is that if you just do what you're doing today, you may survive for the time being, but you're being left behind by everybody else who's choosing to make yeah. strategic decisions now. And the, that, that's why maybe it's not going to be an asset deal. There, there are very few companies that necessarily want to do asset deals. But can you go out and find somebody that you know and you've had a great relationship with and agree to a deal as opposed to us trying to find you somebody? And then you have somebody that you've known. You know the culture right off the bat because you know the person. You guys want to do this together. And then we figure out the deal structure as a separate step. Um, but I think you're going to that's why I think you're going to see more mergers as we move forward of two groups that say, I need to do something strategic. I can't do this alone. i got to find the right partner to do this. Um, and th- you're going to see fewer asset deals because very few companies are willing to raise their hand and say, like, I'm willing to be the exeter. Um, in most industries, selling a company is a sign of success. And for whatever reason in this industry, I think a lot of people feel like it's not a sign of success. And the reality is you built a great company and somebody wants to compensate you for the thing that's most valuable about your company. You should be celebrating that. Um, And it's really unfortunate that that hasn't been the case, but I think you're going to see a little bit more of that merger style um, activity going forward.
0: Is it So that perception of like selling a business is not a sign of success in mortgage. I was thinking about, this recently, I was having lunch with an operator in a very different business, a business that kicks off a lot of cash flow. And in mortgage lending, the businesses create a lot of cash flow and a lot of net income in the right cycles. So owners and operators can build a substantial amount of wealth by operating the business. Compare that to the company, the industries where an exit is considered a sign of success. So like, let's talk about you know software and software as a service and technology, businesses that unless you hold for decades, a lot of the free cash flow gets sucked back into development and growth. And an exit is really the first opportunity an operator has at building significant financial wealth. Is that a fair kind of uh, kind of categorization of like why it might be seen as success in one vertical and failure in another?
1: Uh, it could be. As you mentioned, the mortgage industry has cycles. So you may think you're making a lot of money, but the reality is you, you need to reserve that money. Uh, some yeah. companies d- distributed or dividended out a lot of that income, and they're the ones that really struggled. Or they wanted all the cash, and therefore they were selling the servicing, and they didn't hold on the servicing in 2020 and 2021, and they struggled as a result of that. So I think it's, it's complicated trying to describe why one industry sees a su- success and the other does not. I think also boils down to the fact that many of these companies were created as a one man brokerage, one woman brokerage, and then they became a 10 person brokerage and then become a 20 person lender. And then they became a two ticketed, 100 person company. So they grew organically from a place that was never like, hey, I'm going to go build this big company. A lot of the other companies you talk about, like tech companies, are like, I want to build this and sell this as a unicorn. Like they know what their outcome is. The the in the mortgage industry, hey, like I never really contemplated trying to build something to sell it. So I think they just never contemplated that from the beginning, and that's a part of why you see a big differentiation.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. different psychology, different history. Really interesting. Well, Brett, I I can't thank you enough for sharing your expertise today. Love talking about M and A in the housing industry, M and A period. I know I've already tried to close this conversation out once, but I keep coming back with, with more questions. But uh, I am pumped to stay in touch with you and hope that we can continue bringing this type of knowledge to the audience, especially as the market evolves. And um, I think we never, never really know what the rest of 24 and, and 25 is going to bring until we kind of see what the uh, the 10-year and interest rates do. Ten,
1: the 10-year and the spread? Um and, and obviously, would be happy to continue to to educate uh, all the lenders out there. I, we feel like that's our number one job, um, not doing deals. It, the deals are the outcome of education. So we'd love to help however we can.
0: Thank you, Brett. All
1: right. Thanks for having me, Clayton. Good talking to you.